prophet Zephaniah. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on the day of festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After saying farewell to them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. When he saw that they were straining at the oars against an adverse wind, he came towards them early in the morning, walking on the sea. He intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him and rushed about that whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we uh, think about uh, this event, this miracle, um, that you would help us to understand it and how we might sort of uh, understand the loaves, I suppose. Would you teach us as we reflect on these words of Scripture together, this story out of Jesus' life? Um, in his name we pray. Amen. So I think it was about two years ago that Bethany, I think it was right as Bethany was probably getting to know David a little bit, um, she comes back from the Czech Republic and she shares the work of Thomas Halik. And I, I, I'm sure I've mispronounced that, David, so you can correct me politely after the service. Um, but uh, I came across, uh, he, so he was a, he is rather a priest in the Czech Republic. 
And he uh, had been a part of the underground church, so lived uh, and worked in ministry during the period of the communist occupation. He's written a number of works. I came across something that he said that, uh, that, that, that he writes about that, that reflects or I think has some importance for what we're talking about this morning in this particular text. It's about the relationship of fear uh, and a, maybe a different side of that, awe. So he says this. He says, awe disappeared from Western culture and the process of secularization that started with the Enlightenment and, it, and its emphasis on the greatness and freedom of man and his sovereignty and his emancipation from religion. But what has filled the space left vacant? But what has filled the space left vacant? I can't help thinking that the disappearance of the fear of God has provided increasing scope for fear and anxiety. To a considerable extent, we create our world through our vision of the world, through our perception and assessment of those near us. Fear prevents forethought and instead pathologically projects our past anxieties into the present and future or creates paranoia. So this is a text. Uh, it's a two-parter, it really, because Mark holds the miracle that we looked at last week, the feeding of the 5,000, together with this miracle of Jesus walking on water, calming a storm, and he holds it together in this very odd way by commenting on the lack of faith, or maybe we could even say the lack of awe in the disciples, uh, right? It's that statement there, for they did not understand the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. I want us to think about that this morning together as we sort of move through this text. And let me just suggest that the very first thing is that this is a hopeful observation. Now, you think, wait a minute, you're commenting on the absence of faith. Uh, you're commenting on the hardness of heart. How is that hopeful, right? It's hopeful in a number of ways, and one is obvious, and it's just that Scripture's honest about our struggle with God. It's honest even here about individuals that you might imagine wouldn't have a struggle with God, but they do have a struggle with Jesus, right? They struggle to get him, to understand him, to wrap their minds around him, right? Um, and, and it's particularly helpful for, for, for us because I think sometimes I imagine that if I, had, if, I were, if I was the recipient of or if I was in the context of experiencing miracles with regularity, right, I would have the kind of certainty that produces faith, right? I, I could easily imagine that that would be what is real, that if I just had a little bit more, and right, certainly the people of Jesus' day seemed to think that way about miracles, and they demanded signs of him, and we likely think it was easy for them to have faith. But what Mark points out is that the opposite was the case. Their hearts were hardened. That's interesting to sort of chew on for a minute. So, uh, I think that probably left Mark's readers, um, it certainly leaves me and maybe it leaves us wondering if we understand the loaves, right? I mean, that's the interesting observation, right? For they had not understood the loaves, their hearts were hardened. So I want us to think about that and I want to use three, sort of structured the time together with three words and that's prayer, glory, and response. So first prayer. Um, Jesus uh, has finished the miracle, right, of feeding the 5,000. Uh, the disciples have all had leftover baskets, right? So this is a really wonderful object lesson for them. Uh, this might really work well in children's ministry, or maybe you want an object lesson and walk away with a basket last week. We didn't do that. Sorry. Um, 
but this is a pretty profound moment, and Jesus puts them in a boat, sends them across the lake, and then he goes to pray, right? Jesus does this often. He prays a lot. Now, in this particular moment, I wish, sort of, that I wish that Mark had shared some of those prayers. Like, I want to know, what, what is Jesus talking to God about right now, right? Because I can imagine that, you know, given Mark's comment that, they're, that, they're, that there's unbelief here, that maybe the conversation would go something like, you know, Father, they aren't getting this. Can you help them? Or maybe it's like, are you sure these guys are the right people on the bus? They're going to continue the kingdom of God? I mean, you know, What's going on here? Uh, you know, those are, that's where my mind goes, and it's not so nice moments, or it's honest moments even. Um, and maybe it's a good reason that Mark leaves the prayers private, right? We, we don't know what Jesus was saying. But the important thing we do know is that he prayed. He talked to God regularly. This was ordinary for Jesus. In all circumstances, he talked to God regularly. It's not a super spiritual thing, you know, this isn't like Jesus is all pious and, you know, it's, it's not that he's somehow, it's, no, he talked to God regularly. Why? Because Jesus is God in person. He's human in our world, and he knows what? That God is present, and that God is love, and that God is engaged. He talked to God because God is here, God is doing things. God is engaged. God is bringing his kingdom, right? And so I think this about prayer, that talking with God is one of the most ordinary and human things that you and I can do. It is a human thing that we do. It's not a supernatural thing that we do. It is, it is characteristic of our humanity, or at least it ought to be characteristic of our humanity, right? The truest human is someone who doesn't live and operate within the world out of solitude as if the world were void of God's presence. But the truest human lives ordinary life, our joys, our sorrows, our questions, our doubts, our fears, in conversation with God. We talk to him. Jesus talked to him the way we might confide in a close friend. Have you ever done that? Have you ever talked to a close friend? about your joys, your sorrows, your concerns, your doubts, your unbelief, your hopes, your dreams. Jesus reflects a human being. He is a human being in our world who talks to God about everything because God is present. God is with us. God loves us. He's engaged in our world, and he knows something, in other words, about God that we forget and we completely lose sight of. So here's the thing. I've never, met a, I've never met a Christian who says they pray enough, right? Now, I've known Christians that pray quite a lot, right? But I've never, ever, ever heard anyone say, I, I pray enough, or I've got that part of my life figured out, or whatever, right? I, I've never met a Christian that says that. And if I do, it's probably problematic. But we need to talk about those other issues that are there. But here's the, this the reality. The lack of conversation with God in our lives may be the most deforming aspect of our lives. Why? Because it means just simply this, that the routine of my life is to live habitually as if God is absent. 
as if he's not there, as if he's remote. And if he is there, maybe he's the kind of God that just doesn't care. Prayer is a human activity in which we order our lives and our imagination and therefore our living by the presence of a God who is there and who cares and loves. And we see that in the person of Jesus. Prayer doesn't take us out of ordinary life. It's not a way of escaping ordinary life, but it reorients us to the reality of God's presence, his compassion, and his promise. And here in the midst of this moment of prayer, Jesus isn't so aloof as to not know what's happening to the disciples. It's in this context of prayer that he sees them on the lake straining against the storm. Prayer. Now, second, glory. So the biblical authors, um, whenever you've read the Bible for any length of time in your life or you, maybe some of you have a habit of just reading through the Bible in a year or maybe you have a regular routine of reading Scripture, when you read, right, sections of Scripture after section of Scripture, one of the things you begin to notice is, I, I think I heard this before, right? Have you ever read something you say, this, this reminds me of something else, and why is that? It's because the biblical authors, as they're writing about God's present activity in their moment of time, they are, of course, individuals who are steeped in what God has said before, right? They're steeped in the whole of Scripture. And so sometimes what they do is, you know, by inspiration and by human imagination, they pull forward threads into other parts. And so it's not surprising that when you're reading a part of the New Testament, you think, Wow, there's, there's an echo of something that's older here, right? There's an echo of something out of the Old Testament, for example, right? And I, as, you, as I was reading through this, just a few of them just popped in my mind. Like I thought of Exodus chapter 3 uh, as I was reading this. And that's that place where Moses says, you know, so who do I say is sending me? And God says, tell them I am is sending you. I am. That's my name. And here it's interesting, Jesus says, take heart, for it is I. It's very much related, in a sense, to Jesus saying, take heart, I am. Uh, I, it is I. Or I thought of, uh, you know, Exodus chapter 33, right? And that's the place where Moses finally has this sort of audacity to ask God for something deeper yet still. I want to see your glory. That, that takes some guts because you can imagine that no human being can take in the full weight of God. In fact, God says that's the case, that it would just crush you, it would kill you. So you've got to hide in the cleft of the rock, right? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover you, and then I'm going to let you see my backside. In other words, I'm going to pass by is the language that is used. And it's interesting here that Jesus is attempting to pass by the disciples. Now, maybe that's a coincidence, but it's an echo. It's something that just that your mind can wander towards and just see how this moment of revealing of glory is unfolding for the disciples and has already been unfolding. But there's another echo that I think is so important to this particular text. I'm sure um, Steve Taylor can correct me afterwards if I'm wrong, but I'm going to stick with this. And it's the story of creation itself. It's the story of creation itself. So if you jump back into the early narrative of Scripture and you look at like Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, and Genesis chapter 3, right, that remarkable poetic description of, of the creation story and our fall out of creation, really, in a sense, um, one of the things you notice is what? That human beings 
have, there's something unique about us. It is that we bear the imprint and the image, the likeness of God. And God has put us in his world, in that context, in the garden, which was a garden and just a space of abundance, right? In other words, and so, so, so here is the, these first human beings, right, situated in this pristine, beautiful place, overflowing with abundance, and they're given a charge or a command, and they are to rule over the earth, right? That's what they're to do. What does that mean? In other words, we're to relate to the natural world in a certain kind of way, that we mine its, its value and we mine its beauty and its resource and its abundance as we build out human civilization, right? There's a way that we're meant to relate to the natural world that moves it forward even, that has its own mark of creativity. There's something remarkable about the fact that human beings work. We have vocations. We have a place of engagement that God commissions us to, and he says, do this in my likeness, right? And, and we're meant to have certain kinds of ways of relating to each other. We, we offer love and we receive love in our relationships. And we're meant to, you know, and you can just keep going on about how this sort of manifests itself in society. So we have to figure out how to order ourselves as people, right? Uh, you know, we have to think about, it's the city of Philadelphia. How do you organize the city of Philadelphia? I'm thankfully not a city planner. So these are the kinds of things that human beings were called upon to do, relate to the world that God created as creators in the likeness of God, through our vocations and through our presence and our relational presence. We show up in the world in a certain kind of way out of the overflow of a life with God, in communication with God, a life of prayer. But the reality is, as you keep reading the story and you push on into Genesis chapter 3, you discover very quickly that things go far awry, that that's not how we actually live life. That humanity pulled away from God, retreats from their life with God, and that meant that there was complication, not only in their life with God, but in their life with one another. Have you ever been in a relationship and struggled? Right? I mean, <laughs> I heard a chuckle. Yes, we have. Every single person in this room knows what it's like to not get the love that we need. We know what it's like to be wounded in relationships because we've been wounded. And we know what it's like, by the way, to wound in relationships because we withhold love. We wound. That's the world that we live in. We walk around this world not as if there's abundance and enough to go around, but we walk around in scarcity, anxious, fearful, grasping. And so we're all sort of given this measure of relative power in the world, this relative measure of resource in the world, and our inclination is to hold it tightly. Because if I open my fingers and it goes away, I've lost my identity, I've lost my security, I've lost my future, and you just go on and on. That's what our world is like, and that's how we live life in the world. Remember last week when we were looking at the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and Jesus looks on the crowds and he says, they are like what? Sheep without a shepherd. And he meant that these were individuals who weren't, didn't have people in their lives or in their world that one might think of as a leader. There were plenty of leaders to go around, but they didn't lead in a shepherding way. They held their resources toward themselves. These were individuals in the crowd that no one 
aligned their compassion with because they live selfishly. That's the world, that's the context in which that miracle happened and in which this miracle happens. And so here's a moment when the disciples are overwhelmed by the storm and Jesus comes walking to them in the night, in the early hours, right? And they immediately assume what? That Jesus is part of the chaos. He's part of the brokenness of this world. He's part of the chaos of this world. He's a ghost. So in that moment, you're trying to make sense of reality as it's unfolding in front of you. And so if you were in the boat and you were one of the disciples and you're straining against the wind and the oars, what is the story you're telling yourself? What's the story inside your head about what's happening? Is this a, this is a lovely dream? How wonderful. Or is this a nightmare? Things are bad and they're getting worse. The other shoe is dropping. It's a really scary moment for them. They see Jesus and they've never seen a human being confront nature that way. Well, actually they had in the previous miracle. And in the face of their fear, Jesus says, take heart, it is I. Here's the thing I want us to take away from this is that unless we behold the glory of God in the humanity of Jesus, we will forever struggle to see and engage the glory of our own greatness as persons born of the likeness of the living God. Unless you see the glory of God in Jesus, you see the glory of God in his humanity, you will never reconnect with your own glory as one who's made and reborn in the likeness of God. And so you will not live into your human vocation as a child or a daughter of God or a son of God. You'll live otherwise. Glory. Third response. So their fear gives way to astonishment, right? They're astounded. Now, I've just got to be honest. That sounds like a pretty good response to me, right? I'm like, astounded. That works, right? This is weird, you know? I don't ever see human beings walk on water. I don't ever see uh, them get in the boat, you know, someone like that, get in the boat with me and calm the storm and all of a sudden things are good. That is pretty astounding, right? But, but this is where John, or, or Mark rather, sort of inserts that sort of notice that they hadn't understood the loaves um, about the bread and that their hearts are hardened. So fear and astonishment seem very reasonable to me, given what they're going through, but Mark points out what's missing, and it's a soft heart toward God. Their response isn't one of awe, of awareness of the depth of who Jesus is, the reality of who he is, and not just who he is, but who he is for them who he is with them, connected to them, intimate with them. So I want you to think about the way uh, you experience fear and anxiety. What does that look like in your life? I know maybe none of you struggle with anxiety. Lucky you. Um, What does it look like in your life? How how does it work? So as I thought about this with myself, I I was thinking, well, how, how do I project fear onto my future? How do I live in a state of anxiety? And it usually happens when I'm aware of just my powerlessness, right? I I sort of, I know my limitations. I know that this is beyond me. I know that whatever circumstance I'm confronted with 
it's greater with, than me, or its disappointment is so great that I can't imagine it being turned around, right? So it, it, it shows up in things like, you know, um, well, just a couple years ago, for example, I was, uh, <clears throat> I had a kidney stone. Those are bad things. And so I go, I go to HUP because the, my primary care says, hey, tuck, go get a, you know, go get a, a CT scan and then we'll know if it's what it is. You know, I'm like, I've got all this pain and whatever. So I go in and I get the CT scan and then the technician comes out and says, you must go see your doctor right away. And I'm like, what? Is there any more information that you can? No, they can't share any more information with you. You've got to go get it from the primary care. And so I'm walking the long walk over to the primary care. Now, of course, it's going to be a kidney stone. But in my mind, it's a tumor. And my, you know, that's where I'm projecting. That's where my head goes. And you ask, you know, my family that lives around me, they know that Tuck's head goes to spaces like that all too easily. Bad news. Bad health news. Bad prognosis. Maybe it's some vulnerable exposure of failure that absolutely terrifies you because it rips out from beneath you everything you've been standing on in front of other people, and maybe even God. Maybe it's a relationship rupture. You thought you were good at relationship, but you're in a relationship, and it's crashing, and it's burning, and you're thinking, I'm not so good at relationship. I'm not the lover that I thought I was. Maybe it's financial fears. Maybe it has to do with your vocation or job or trying to find a job or you're just in a job that just stinks. What is it that you bump up against that you realize you can't control and it's disappointing to you and it produces fear and anxiety in you and you get stuck in bad places? It's interesting to think about how fear works in our lives. This is a moment when fear gives way to astonishment. And it's mostly just because Jesus has shown up with his superpowers. But there's no awe. There's no faith that it provokes or evokes. Think about where the disciples are in their particular journey. They have a unique journey with Jesus, right? They are the people that God entrusted his physical presence to, in a way, right? That, so when the, when the, you know, it's Peter, for example, right? We, we touched Jesus. We listened to Jesus. We ate with Jesus. They did very physical, human, ordinary activities with Jesus, right? And they do that in behalf of us. They do that for us so that we, we partner with them. We, we connect with their stories, right? They have a unique experience of Jesus. So think about where the disciples are here in this particular moment. Jesus has confronted the reality of hungry crowds with them. And he's just simply said, you feed them. And they're shocked. And he just says, well, bring me what you have. Right? Jesus doesn't ask you for more than you have, but he does ask you for all of you. Bring me what you have. He blesses it. He breaks it, and there's leftover. And there's a tremendous lesson in that for them, that in the presence of God, in a life in communion with God, there is more than enough to go around. More than enough to go around. And so when Jesus here in this moment of the storm says, take heart, fear not, for I am or I am with you, it is I, right? It's a moment in which Jesus is saying, 
I'm compassionate. I'm not indifferent. I'm here. I'm not far away. And your life is caught up into the story God is telling with me. You're a part of my future. You're a part of this church. You're a part of the coming of God's kingdom. In Jesus, God is bringing his kingdom. He's here. He's now. He's with us in the boat. And Mark says just simply of this particular moment in their lives, they don't get it. They're not in awe of what God is doing. They don't see it. They don't have the intimate connection. So what about us? What about us? Where is your life stormy? Um, just think on what, what did you go through this week? What did you read about in the news this week that was hard or that was difficult, that leaves you, you know, are you frustrated with the ongoing political drama in our country? That might lead some people to despair or to tremendous anxiety that things are just going from bad to worse. Were there awarenesses in your life of exploitation in our world? Um, abuses of power in a variety of ways such that people are still hungry, that poverty is perpetuated, an ongoing problem, it's not resolved, that sexual exploitation and sexual trafficking is, is a thing that happens. Human beings grossly misuse other human beings. That's the world that we inhabit. Is that disturbing? Does it produce anxiety? Maybe it's some part of your personal story that you're wrestling with, and you don't know how to share it with others because you fear that just talking about the painfulness of something in your own life story, that it would absolutely undermine your identity and sense of being. Where's your storm? You see, what if when you're reading this particular story of the miracle of Jesus walking on water, what if in this moment of action, the action of Jesus, that we're meant to sort of understand that his prayers, his presence in the storm of, in that moment of the disciples' life is very much his presence to tell us something, rather, about his presence to us, his nearness to us in our storms. See, what if you and I are meant to hear this morning the same words? Take heart, it is I. So that you live into the storms of your life knowing that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. That his faithfulness is so extensive and would continue beyond this moment in the gospel story to the cross. And that he would move forward into resurrection and that God would just so promise that your life is a part of that future. How would it change the way you live with risk? How would it enable you to risk love like Jesus? How might it enable you to risk taking up your cross and following Jesus into the world? See, the promise isn't that the storms of our lives get resolved in exactly the way I want them resolved. I sure wish that were the case. But the promise is that in Jesus' life, God is resolving all storms. And he is creating a different story and a different narrative that will end in a very different place. The coming of his kingdom. And that now, as we have faith in him, as we live in awe of his presence, that we become individuals that take up lives of risk. Risky love. As you follow the arc of Jesus' story, 
And you see that at the end of the life, Jesus isn't walking on waves anymore, right? I mean, just metaphorically, he's not walking on waves anymore. In fact, the waves are crashing over his own body, and he sinks beneath the weight of human injustice. His death on the cross is a moment when if you just want to cast it in the words of this particular text, it looks like the hardness of human hearts won. That's what it looks like. Here is a man who said and did things like no other human being before or after him could match, and he died beneath the violent hand of human hubris. And God raised him up and said that this is the humanity under which I will recreate your human life, your human experience. Who would expect God to become so vulnerable and great like that among us? And yet that is the story of who Jesus is. Do you understand the loaves? Do you understand about the bread? A friend of mine was in town over the weekend, and we were chatting Friday night. He's a pastor uh, up in New York, and we were chatting Friday night about this particular text, and you know, you just always come back to this question. They didn't understand about the loaves. It's just such a weird sort of insertion right there in the middle of it, right? And so I said, hey, what, what do you think about this? And he said, Tuck, we walk away from the bread every week not understanding. Wow. We walk away from the bread every week not understanding. So in just a moment, we're going to gather at the table, and we're going to take bread, and we're going to take wine, and we're going to eat, and we're going to drink. Will you remember the miracle of the bread? Will you live out of the abundance of his compassionate presence toward you so that you begin to become a person, and we become a community of persons who take the risk of engaging the problems of life, the storms of life, our own, and those of our neighbor, as persons who are so deeply loved by a God who is present and who is near, often in the midst of people who are afraid and anxious because they know nothing of the fear of God. May God give us the grace to understand the bread. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet us as we continue in our time of worship, that you would help us to understand the mystery and the miracle of the bread and that we would be individuals who know that you are near us and you love us and you would give us courage and you would give us faith and awe to face and stand and engage our struggles in this life and in this world. Meet us, Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.